Okay, good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, good evening. Good to see you all. Good evening to those of you online as well. Thanks for joining us. So tonight is going to mark a bit of a transition. As I mentioned at the beginning of the class, exactly how you teach the parables is still a mystery to me. It's part of one of the reasons why you don't have very many books on the par- the parables either. It's almost impossible to be objective. You have to be somewhat idiosyncratic in your approach to the parables. So I thought what I'd do is have a zoom all the way back out uh, and just take a look at the method of my madness here so that we can see why it is we're going to make a transition tonight. So at the start of the class, we looked at the two foundational teachings in the Gospels in respect to what the parables are and what their purpose is. So we looked at uh, Mark 4 and Matthew 13, where Jesus lays out the theology, the purpose of the parables. And we spent some weeks here. This is not by any means a technical designation, but the parables are, in a sense, a second-tier teaching of Jesus. The first tier is the straightforward proclamation that he brings. Now, we could include the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, any number of Jesus' teachings within this first category, but this is straightforward teaching. And the Gospels frequently paraphrase this with, he's preaching that the kingdom or reign of God is at hand, which they would have understood to be the Messiah long foretold in the Old Testament scriptures has appeared. And similarly, he comes in order to preach. Healing isn't specifically what he comes to do, nor the casting out of demons. These are Uh, secondary, ancillary uh, kinds of activities. Preaching is primarily what he does, and that preaching centers on forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, being brought into and under the reign of God. But for those who reject this straightforward message, those, that is at least part, in part the rationale of why he goes to this second-tier preaching and use of the parables. So that those who believe will from the parables have the mysteries or secrets of the kingdom of God revealed, while those who reject his plain teaching will be confounded by the parables. So we spent a lot of time laying that foundation so that we understand (coughs) theology of the parables themselves. Then what we did was we just started tracking through Matthew's gospel so we could get a sense in which each evangelist has their own agenda in presenting, organizing, and presenting the parables of Jesus. So as we track through Matthew, we saw how the parables all center around a sort of nexus of teaching. For example, Matthew 21 that we went through last week really has to do with Jesus' offensive use, his attack use of the parables where he catches the Pharisees in their own traps. He tells them parables, asks them to render a judgment they do, and in so rendering a judgment, they have condemned themselves. But you might remember that prior to Matthew 21, back in Matthew 18, there was a whole nexus of parables where Jesus is establishing the basis of his church and the way in which the church is to cohere Those who stray from the church are to be sought as a lost sheep. Those who sin within the church against the fellowship are to be dealt with in accordance with Matthew 18, which of course then ends in the parable of the unforgiving servant. So you can see how these parables are all wrapped around a given nexus or loci of teaching. All right. So we progress through Matthew, and all that remains in Matthew are the parables that have to do with judgment and the eschaton. They're all in Matthew, in fact. I mean, well, not all of them, but the vast majority of them are in Matthew, Matthew 24. So here's what I want to do. Instead of going into Matthew 24, I want to retrace very briefly, now through Mark, and just look at the parables, through Luke, look at the parables, and end 
with the parables of judgment. Why? Because I think that this will give you the most organic sense I can possibly give you for the way the parables work together and climax in the parables of judgment. Make sense? All right. Sorry for the very lengthy explanation, but I didn't want you to think I was just picking things randomly out of a hat and saying, all right, you know, tonight we'll be in Mark. I don't know. Let's see where it takes us. All right. So with those preliminary matters out of the way, let's open with invocation and prayer, and then we'll jump into the text. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we study the parables of your Son, our Master, and our Teacher, may we, the servants, may we, the disciples, be ever conformed into his image. May we indeed become like our master, that we might think the way he thinks, speak the way he speaks, and act and do those things that he himself acts and does. For in so doing, we will be one with you, even as you are one with him. Send your Holy Spirit into our midst, that all our studies may be fruitful, and may be written not only into our minds, but also into our very hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we then have been through the body of Jesus' preaching of the parables in Matthew's gospel, we now turn to Mark, but only very briefly, and we catch a pre-parable. So we want to open up to Mark chapter 3. And what I mean by a pre-parable as you will recall from our previous studies, and as I just recapped for you, in Mark 4 is the foundation where Jesus speaks of the reason and purpose for his use of parables. So this is a pre-parable. It shows up before his explanation, and that is uh, here in chapter 3, Verse 23 is where the parable or parables begin. Now, you'll notice in, and you'll recall in Mark's gospel, everything happens immediately. Everything happens quickly. It's Mark's artistic style that everything is terse and stark and frequently left enigmatic, open to interpretation. And we see things even in chapter 3, just to try to gain the larger context, moving very quickly. You see the calling of the 12 uh, in chapter 3, verse 13. And that then is followed closely by this charge from the scribes who come down from Jerusalem. So that's where we'll pick up at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, by the ruler of demons, he, Ekbalain, casts out the demons. Okay, so this is their charge. Now, they're not being, being very precise. Beelzebul is a derivative of the Canaanite god And he sort of shows up in the scriptures in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. So he's this Canaanite god, this demon. I think you can, you get a tantalizing fragment of how it is that the first century scribes view sort of the nature of demons, that indeed the Old Testament false gods were extant in the form of demons uh, who were possessing and afflicting people. So this is their charge that Jesus himself is possessed by this Old Testament Canaanite God. Um, You can see Beal, that's Baal. And Zebul is often a Zabub, which the author of 2 Kings uses to change from like, because Zabub is like Lord of... It's either Lord of a fly, like it's a play on words, like, like Lord of nothing, Lord of a fly, you know, um, or Lord of flies in the sense of like, yeah, that's all his kingdom is, is these 
unclean little bugs that run around. So that's where Zabub comes from as opposed to Zabul. And the study note says that this, and I think that this is right, that they're just so upset with Jesus, there's not a lot of precision. They're not claiming that Beelzebul is the prince of demons. They would say that that's Satan or the devil. Um, either way, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Okay, 23, and he called to them, or he called them to him, and said to them in parables. So this is uh, going to be a minor but recurrent aspect as we're told it's plural and it's hard to tell that it, in what sense it's plural unless there's parables not mentioned here. In a moment, we're going to see the opposite. We're going to see parable and you're going to be like, well, when does it start and stop? <laughs> and how many are there? But it's singular. All right. So here is what he says to them. How can Satan, and again, ekbalain, ekbalay is the language here, cast out Satan? I think if you just, like, I don't know if this is confusing. It's probably not confusing. But if you think of, like, if you think of it spatially, it makes perfect sense. How could Rhodey cast out Rhodey? You'd still have Rhodey, right? So that's the point. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. The next is a parallel. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And here, apparently, I mean, those are like more like similes or metaphors. I don't know if those are they're sort of like a parable. They're parable-esque. But here probably is what's meant by the parable proper at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. All right, well, Jesus preaches many odd things, and here's a parable on how to rob someone. <laughs> so, you know, you can, I guess it even kind of makes sense, kind of makes sense today. If you're going to rob somebody's house, you might tie them up if they're there, you know, and then, then steal all their stuff. Uh, especially if they're strong, you have to do that. Otherwise, they're going to be pesting after you. When you're trying to move the TV, they're going to be, you know, slapping at your head. It's not going to work going to slow you down. So Jesus then likens his activity of casting out demons to entering a strong man's house in order to plunder his goods, but first binding the strong man. So the typical interpretation of this, and I think it's dead on, is that this world is effectively the strong man's house. Satan is the strong man who possesses it. Saint, or elsewhere, he's called the God, small g, of this world. So this obviously harkens back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And when God said, don't eat, and Satan said, do eat, they selected for themselves to have Satan as their God. And by nature are thus made after his image and likeness. Original sin, as we would later define it. Okay, so for Jesus to come in order to plunder his house, in order to steal all Satan's stuff, he has to first bind Satan. And that's what he's doing by the casting out of demons. Okay, so the casting out of demons is representative of him binding Satan. He's casting them out of people where they cannot have that kind of influence and control. He's doing so, he's binding Satan and then all of Satan's host so that he may plunder his house, which is, of course, to recover his original possessions, which is us. So in a sense, I mean, once you realize everything that's in view, that the house that's being plundered is the world and the goods that are being plundered is us, are we properly Satan's? 
No. So this is like a Jerry Springer soap opera or something. You know, it's say we first belong to Jesus and Satan stole us. Right. And now Jesus is breaking in, binding the strong man and taking back what is rightfully his. So this isn't a theft, properly speaking, as much as it is uh, a a making right, a making whole, a sort of retribution. It is fun to think of Jesus as the thief, and especially because we frequently see and think of him as crucified between two thieves. And so in this sense, it's fun. The greatest thief who ever lived is Christ because he's plundering the whole world, uh, countless saints, innumerable saints, um, carrying them in his sack, the Holy Christian Church up into heaven. (laughs) So kind of a fun thing to, to think about. Um, But in truth, he's doing no wrong. We don't belong to Satan. We belong to him, and Satan has taken us. Okay, and this, uh, by the way, ties in heavily with, uh, of course, that rather enigmatic statement in Revelation about the binding of Satan, followed by the thousand-year reign of Christ. Well, if you go looking for that language of the binding of Satan, you're going to land right here, and this is going to be pretty much your primary referent. So the binding of Satan begins with the ministry of Christ. And his, this way he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. That's why we see him crowned and lifted up, exalted on the cross. His reign has already begun, the thousand-year reign of which John speaks in poetic uh, language and apocalyptic language. Um, is concrete in the incarnation and ongoing ministry and reign of Jesus. Okay, uh, so then, I mean, that really brings an end to it. Now, let's, let's go a little further, though, because I know this is going to be of interest, and it does connect to what um, comes in verses 22, or verse, yeah, verse 22. So at um, verse 28, then Jesus says, Amen, I say to you. And again, he's speaking to the scribes who has said he's possessed by Beelzebub and works by Satan. Amen, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark puts in here the explanation, for they, namely the scribes, were saying he has an unclean spirit. All right, so they were accusing him of being possessed by Beelzebub, by casting out demons by means of the prince of demons. And now we learn that they were also saying he has an unclean spirit. Well, which spirit does he in fact have? The Holy Spirit who descended upon him like a dove. So everything he is doing is done by the Holy Spirit. And if they say he has an unholy spirit, they're utterly lost. They're utterly lost. This is a kind of eternal sin, not because like, God suddenly clutches his pearl and says, now that's the pearls and says, now that's one that's just, I can't forgive that. That's too bad. I don't think that that's the sense of it, but the sense of it rather is that if you are going to accuse Jesus of everything that Jesus does as being the product of an unholy spirit, then you're utterly lost. You are eternally damned. So that's, I mean, the the contrary truth just makes it shine all the more that he is the anointed one, the Christ anointed by the Holy Spirit. And everything he does is through the Holy Spirit. And everything he does is to make clean. And this is where Luther is just so wonderful in the large catechism. He says, why is the Holy Spirit called the Holy Spirit? Because that's what he does. He makes everything holy. So the casting out of demons is is him making that person holy. 
in the ritual usage of the Old Testament properly, what he's doing is making them clean and then holy. Whereas an unclean spirit makes unclean to render holiness impossible. So these are diametrically opposed the unclean spirit and the cleanness, the unholy spirit and the Holy spirit, the work of Jesus and the work of Satan, they're completely diametrically opposed. And to confuse these is to commit an eternal sin because you've just, I mean, you've just destroyed salvation. You're not going to be saved. Okay. So hopefully then that makes sense. Now, again, we're told (laughs) that he says these things to them in parables Um, We can detect maybe one clear parable here, uh, and you can see how this functions. And again, this is sort of a pre-parable. We're going to see a similar thing in Luke here in just a minute that comes before chapter 4, where uh, Jesus then explains why it is that he preaches in parables. Let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts, any reflections, anything stand out to you that I missed or maybe got confused. Do you repeat again that uh, eternal sin comes about if anyone blasphemes or basically says the Holy Spirit is unclean? Did you say that because that strips away its ability to give salvation? Or if you could reword that, I would appreciate it. Yeah, I can try to restate it. I do think, I mean, this may be a technicality, but I do think it's important. Look, look at what Jesus says, starting at verse 28. Amen, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. Notice that Jesus doesn't explicitly here say that the scribes have done this thing. And I do think that that's a technicality, but an important one, that, that he's letting them know in no uncertain terms what it is they're about. And if they, if they do continue in this error and hold it, this becomes an eternal sin. Okay? Why then does it become an eternal sin? Precisely because it it's cuts one off from Christ. Again, um, verse 30 is most helpful for understanding this. They, the scribes, were saying he has an unclean spirit. The spirit he has is the Holy Spirit. This confusion, the unclean spirits are diametrically opposed to the Holy Spirit. If you get that confused, you're lost. You think that Jesus is operating by an unclean spirit and serving Satan, you're going to end up then being anti-Jesus, anti-Christ. You're utterly lost. This is no regular run-of-the-mill sin. This isn't even a blasphemy against God. This is of its very nature a sin that will separate you from God eternally. And there is no forgiveness because the only forgiveness is in Jesus, the same Jesus whom you are rejecting and saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this is a step further than mere unbelief, and it's why, properly speaking, the sin against the Holy Spirit is not mere unbelief. The sin against the Holy Spirit goes a step further. And again, the sin against the Holy Spirit is not something you slip on a banana peel and come into, okay? Uh, it's not, you know, it's not something that a, a Christian needs to be worrying about committing. In fact, if he thinks, if he, if he is like, you know, worried about it, that's only proof that he is a Christian, if not, you know, an uninformed Christian. Okay, because this isn't directed at Christians. This is directed at those who do not believe in Jesus. And mere unbelief is, I mean, tolerable in the sense that Jesus will continue to work to convince those who do not believe in him. But when one is in a state of unbelief and takes that to this point at which he says Jesus is the devil incarnate and everything he is doing, he is doing by the power of the unclean spirit, you are so utterly lost and so upside down that you've separated yourself from the only thing that can save you. You've, you've now become so diametrically opposed that it would be impossible to, it would be a distinction without a difference to say that you are other than Satan yourself. So, what does this 
It's more than unbelief. Um, is is it? Would they have to say that Jesus is? If they say that Jesus is anything other than God, is that? No. Okay. No. They would have to say he's an agent of the devil. Yeah. Again, God's not up there like with uh, you know some sort of like set of bylaws with different points, wondering as soon as they've crossed the line and he can write that down. That's, that's not how this is working. And I know that that's not what you're saying. I'm just trying to bring it to an absurd point so we can back it up a little. Um, this, this is, and I think that this even goes beyond like, I mean, let's say that this was a passing charge and a passing opinion of these particular scribes. Who knows if it was or wasn't. That's not what's in view. Jesus is warning them of what's in view, that if their hearts harden unto this, it is an eternal sin. So uh, I would also say, and I think this is in keeping with the, you know, this, this is past, this goes past mere apostasy because we see Peter fall away from the Lord and deny him three times. This is past mere apostasy, okay? Um, this is past an atheist or an apostate, um, sort of mocking Jesus and saying, well, I think Jesus is the devil. I think, I think religion is uh, the Antichrist. I think Christianity is the Antichrist. I think, look at all the problems. There. But when you start saying those things, you are borderline, borderline. You're right up against, just like these scribes are at minimum, right up against this sin. Because if you actually do, in your heart of hearts, say, no, he is the devil. He is filled with the unclean spirit. Everything he does is of the worst. And you take that to its logical conclusion, then, to be on the side of light is to be anti-Christ. Something is happening within your being, a sinful state, a sin is happening within your being that separates one eternally from God. Okay, so hopefully that, that works to clarify. But yeah, this is a special class of sin. This isn't mere unbelief or mere apostasy or anything else. It's something that happens in the heart that carries this special judgment. Like I said, you don't slip and fall into this sin on a Tuesday afternoon and then you're lost forever, no matter how much you wish you were saved and wish you could be forgiven. It's not how this works. You know, the sin against the Holy Spirit is one one doesn't come back from. That would be another thing. So if someone says, hey, I think I that very thing you described, Pastor, I've done, and, and I want to be forgiven, and I want to be saved, you haven't actually committed it. Your heart hasn't been set within that. Please. Uh, the way you've introduced this is I often get lost in the parable. I start relating to the king or to the master and, and, and relating to how he should have acted and that God should have done this. Here he's a thief. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I gotta lose all that. Like, he's stealing things, but he's he's retrieving his possession. I love the way you explain that so that I don't get caught up in trying to personify God in the way this guy happened to act and lose track of the purpose of the parable. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some outrageousness. So we're gonna, we're gonna see that coming up in some of the other parables of Jesus. There's some outrageousness that invites uh, contemplation. Probably would have invited some gasps, and uh, as we're gonna see in a minute, even some laughter um, if you heard it for the first time. Uh, so yeah, Jesus is a Jesus is a dynamic preacher. You know, and that's the other thing. And I think I think this is just part of uh, the maturation process we have to go through as his disciples, but. It's good that we begin by taking everything Jesus says quite literally and quite seriously. That's good, and, and I would almost say that that's an essential step. It's kind of a tether and an anchor. But as you get to know Jesus more, you start to see how he speaks with hyperbole almost all the time. And that's sort of a, a way in which you can still be tethered to the respect you have, the absolute respect you have for what he's saying, but also admire the ridiculousness and the humor, the outrageousness, the starkness um, of, of some of the things that he says and preaches. In fact, it's, it's a frequent thing that he does. It's one of his great stylistic points. Yeah, please, John. Yes. Um, when this meeting, this not sin against the Holy Spirit, is that connected to the sin, like our anything 
about Yeah, Hebrews 6 is a similar dynamic. It's a similar dynamic. And usually, usually in, in dogmatics, so, you know, dogmatics is the exercise where you say, well, this book says this, and this book says this, and this book says this. Can we tie these together somehow? And so, yes, usually Hebrews 6 is always treated with uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit. Um, likewise, also, if you recall from our study of First John, that last chapter of First John, I think it's chapter 5, where uh, you have um, the sin leading to, unto death. I say that you should not pray for those. Those nexus of verses always get tied together. I think we should, be, we should have a healthy degree of skepticism when we see that. Okay, you should really question that. Like, are these, I mean, I know they have a they have a sort of superficial view to them. Are they in fact talking about the same reality? And you, we ought to question that and consider that. Now, I do think, I do think that the parallel between the two, I don't think that they're identical, but I do think the parallel between the two is that both pa- this passage, let's say, and Hebrews 6 are talking about the same reality. Hebrews 6, remember, uses this, um, uses this language of, uh, so I'm just going to have to paraphrase and do it shorthand, but he likens the gospel upon th- this kind of apostasy. Okay. If you were to, if these, if the, if those to whom he is writing, apostatize, then preaching the gospel to them will only produce within them thorns because they are knowingly, wittingly, with full warning, saying we are going to reject Christ, trample him, and go back to Judaism to save ourselves from the coming persecution. So the author of Hebrews, whether it's St. Paul or whomever else, is saying, if you do this, then how are you going to be reconverted? Okay. If the gospel is rain, all it's, what, what are you going to do? Come to you and say, Jesus died for you? You've already trampled on that very thing. When the gospel rain comes to you, all that's going to come back is thorn and thistle. Okay. So you can see how it's a very similar dynamic, although I'm not sure it's absolutely identical because I don't see a mention of the sin against the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 6, at least off the top of my head. If somebody pulls it up and finds out otherwise, we can entertain that. But uh, no, I, I, so there's a, there's a distinct similarity, but I don't think there's a identity between the two. Yeah, there are spiritual things that you can't come back from. I mean, that's just a fact and just a reality. Uh, so, and it and it is it does serve even amongst those being saved as a stark warning and a cross against our flesh that we not let things run rampant. You know, let let sin run rampant as to produce unbelief and unbelief, despair and the kind of despair that knows the Bible, but won't be comforted by the Bible. What a terrible state. Okay, well, anything else we want to entertain on this? All right, so then uh, let's, let's go over to Luke, and let's look at Luke chapter 6, and we're going to get the pre-parable in Luke again before chapter 13, where he really lays down the foundation for why it is that he preaches the parables. And here we're going to have a lot of fun because it's part of a larger sermon. Frequently, the sermon described as the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6. And we're going to pick up uh, right at verse 39. The Sermon on the Plain is similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but different. And here, too, you can see how it is that Jesus preaches. He frequently repeats themes, sometimes gives more, sometimes less. There's a wonderful freedom in the preaching of Jesus. And I think once you grasp this, too, you'll be able to see this is. um, So when you find differences like like within one gospel, let's say Jesus is at Jesus is at one particular point of time. And in another gospel, he has to be at that identical point in time. 
And then you see something in the teaching of Jesus that's like mutually exclusive. It couldn't have possibly happened at that same time at that same place. Okay, you can get all wound up and try to like defend how that could possibly be and come up with all the possible explanations, you know, and and I don't know, maybe there's some validity in that, at least in terms of apologetics and part of like defense of the gospel. But much more honestly, what's going on is as Jesus is going about his ministry, he's preaching uh, the kinds of sermons. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, right? But he preaches very similar content when he's at the Sermon on the Plain. Any guesses if he preached that comment, that same kind of stuff at, at other places? I mean, almost certainly he did. So a lot of the sermons we have of Jesus and the parables we have of Jesus are representative of the larger body of his preaching. And so where you find um, maybe a, a mutually exclusive point of difference, at least as Christians, when we don't need to make an apologia defense, we can just be honest and say, um, look, he's doing this kind of preaching all the time. He probably preached this sermon in one form or another half a dozen different times. There's no wonder why we see a little nuance here, a nuance there, and the differences between the apostles as they're, or the disciples as they're remembering this. Okay, so that, that just helps us to loosen up a little bit. I know we, we're coming out of the battle for the Bible and all of that, but we can loosen up a little bit and... Um, be absolutely convinced that the Bible is God's word and is infallible and inspired and all those other things, but also see the reality of how it was put together. So here's Sermon on the Mount. You can look very broadly. There's four Beatitudes followed by four woes. So the Beatitudes are in verses 20 through 23 and the woes 24 through 26. Very similar elements, just given short shrift relative to Matthew 5 in verses 27 through 38. And then at 38, we're just going to pick up midstream where Matthew or where Luke says he also told them a parable, <laughs> which who knows? Who knows? Is this whole thing a parable? I don't know. You be the judge. Okay. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Should be self-evident. Maybe a little humorous if you allow yourself to be not PC. And then he goes on to say, a disciple... A mathetes is not above his didaskal on his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, kater tismenos, so that can be completed or repaired even. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. What happens if your teacher is a blind man? <laughs> I mean, that's the first comparison. You're going to be blind. So who your teacher is pretty much matters, doesn't it? Uh, and I think what we're going to see is there's reflections on discipleship throughout this, but there's also reflections on the master. So if you follow a blind man, you're going to be blind. You're going to fall into a pit. And in this case, the pit may well be hell. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So again, the clarion call is to have our Lord be our teacher, but then look what it means to be his disciple. When we are fully trained, we will be like our teacher, so conformed into his image. Again, saying his, thinking his thoughts, saying his words, doing his deeds is the ultimate goal of discipleship. Is it not? I mean, what a ridiculous idea of discipleship. I, Jesus is my Lord and master, but I intend to think different than him, speak different than him, and live different than him. In what sense is he your master? Jesus is the enlightened son of God who knows all things. I think I'll do whatever I want to do in Christian freedom. <laughs> ah, it's wild. So I know that this is a, a kind of contrary to us because we're worried about legalism. We're worried about conformity. Um, we're, we're Americans, so we like um, to be independent. Uh, but that's not the essence of our relationship to Jesus. Okay, have we hit the parable yet? I don't know, maybe. It's hard to say. Here are some other 
parable-esque elements. Why do you see the speck, the carfos, so the splinter or twig, it's the tiny little chip of wood. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Now, brother here is, um, when Jesus uses this, it's almost always internal. It's almost always Christian. And I would say that that's most certainly the case here. So why do you see the carfos that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the two by four, the beam log isn't bad. That is in your own eye. Okay, so look at how Jesus has woven these things together. We're going to see this weaving. I mean, it's infuriating if you're trying to like organize it all, but uh, it's beautiful just by way of sermonic kind of preaching. Look, it's a speck in your eye, and it's a beam in your eye, which is going to render you blind. Can a blind man lead a blind man? <laughs> so we've got reflections on blindness going on. He's, he's kind of woven us back to that motif. And he continues in verse 42, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. And there's some, there's some irony there. I don't want to overread it, but there is some irony um, that not only is there a log in your eye, but you don't even see that there's a log in your eye. There's a blindness upon blindness here. Okay, now this is controversial, and I think, we, I think we do well to meditate on it. You hypocrite. Now, one way Jesus could have ended this, and it would have a certain Christian truth to it. You hypocrite. Leave the carfos, leave the speck in your brother's eye. And take out the log in your own. And since you can't take out the log in your own, you can't take out the speck in his eyes. So just repent and be forgiven. Jesus could have ended it something like that. I don't think he does. That's, that's frequently how it's preached. But I don't think that that's what he's doing. It's possible, but I don't think so. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. I don't think that Jesus is saying we're all hopelessly blind, so don't even try. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's, I think he's literally saying you've got a log in your eye. Once you have taken that out, you will, in fact, see clearly to take out the speck in your brother's eye. What would that mean concretely? Yeah. Realizing the log of your own sins relative to the speck of your brother's sins gives you the proper understanding and contextualization to handle him gently and to help him with the utmost gentleness, which is precisely what you do if you were taking a splinter out of someone's eye. How careful, how gentle, how still and slow and cautious would you be in taking that out? And I do think that that's Jesus' point. The opposite would be, and, and again, I think, I think a case can be made for this, that the whole thing's bombast and hyperbole, and you're just meant to not even try. Just you're blind, your brother's blind, you're doomed to stay blind. That's the point. Any attempt to correct your brother is immediately an act of hypocrisy. You can't get rid of your, your own sin, so you can't get rid of the sin of someone else. Um, it's possible that read, I just don't think it's actually what Jesus is doing. I think if that's what he was doing, he would have stated things much more clearly in that direction. Okay, so um, I'll submit that to you, and you can marinate on it, and we'll, uh, we'll cycle back here, um, and you can let me know what you think. Now, in the same way that we've gone from blindness, and then you've got this bit about teaching, and then we're back to something in the eye, and this not seeing, and then seeing in order to cause you, in order to allow your brother to see. But what's in the eye is wood. And now we move into the tree. I mean, isn't this wild how Jesus thinks? <laughs> I don't know. It's like wild. 
So now, now he's going from like the wood in your eye to the tree. Okay, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. All right, well, I'm, I'm agriculturally challenged, but I at least know enough to know that, you know, a lemon tree isn't going to suddenly produce apples. Or a, a tree that bears only pine cones isn't going to suddenly produce edible fruit. So that's self-evident. And Jesus is going to play off of this. Then he continues, For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. That's true enough. You get a fig from a fig tree, not a thorn bush. And grapes aren't picked from a bramble bush. That's right. You get grapes from a vine, not a bramble bush. Now, I don't know about this. 45, the good person, this is the ESV, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Okay, so this would be the kind of all or nothing law and gospel that we see Jesus use, that we saw John use in 1 John. If this is referring to a Christian, which is generally how it's taken. So let me treat it that way first, and then I'll I'll just give you an intriguing possibility. So in this section, then, to become a good tree is to bear good fruit. To be a bad tree is to bear bad fruit. This would be akin to everything done apart from faith is sin. But what does indeed flow from faith are all the fruits of the Spirit and the good works. So from that good tree that is faith, good works flow, and no sins flow from faith. Um, From that, from unbelief comes only sin apart from faith. All is sin. So that's a way to understand that in Pauline categories. Now, how else might we take this? And I do think that Jesus elsewhere explicitly uses this imagery uh, for Christians. I do think that. So I don't. I think that what I just said is objectively right. I'm not sure that what he. That's exactly what he's up to here. I'm. Just, and by that, I don't. I'm not doing anything rhetorical. I just mean I really have a little a bit of uncertainty. Why? Because it doesn't read exactly as the ESV puts it. It says at verse 45, not the good person, but ha agathos anthropos, the good man. All right, well, that's fair enough. That's nothing to write home about. But what's the contrast? Look at the end of 45, or I guess it's the middle of 45, I'm sorry, where the ESV renders it the evil person. That's not, it doesn't say that. You would expect it to say, the poneros anthropos, so that there's parallel, the good man and the evil man. But that's not what it says. It says the poneros, the evil one. And that's intriguing because in the context of, uh, in the context of the Our Father, for example, the last petition is... Um, but rescue us or deliver us from the evil one. So I know we say the evil and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but it probably is more tightly the evil one. Okay, so he's just called Poneru or Poneros. So it's fascinating that here you have the good man contrasted with the evil one the evil. So might this be a reference to Christ versus Satan? And if so, the good tree bearing good fruit and the evil tree bearing bad fruit, the offspring of Christ being good, the offspring of Satan being evil out of the abundance of Christ's mouth comes good treasure from 
I mean, the, or, or I maybe, maybe to put it, sorry, to put it more grammatically correct, the, out of the good treasure or treasury of his heart produces good. I mean, that's true for a Christian, par Christian, um, but it is uh, certainly Christ. And then the evil one out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of heart, his mouth speaks. The evil one speaking evil. Now, if so, if so, it goes back, it does go back a little bit to, um, I don't want to make overread this again, but um, back to the themes of verse 40, that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. What do we say? The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. If Christ here is, in fact, the good tree bearing good fruit, then there's the there's the didaskalon, the teacher, and we, the mathetes, the disciples. So it would, be, it would be part and parcel of our Lord's teaching of exclusivity. If you don't have him, you have the evil one. I don't know. I don't know. I, again, I present these things with some degree of uncertainty because they're potentialities in the text. Um, whether they're exegetically correct or not, they're materially correct, right? And whether you read this as Christ and the devil and Christians and non-Christians, or whether you just read this as the Christian versus the non-Christian, either way, you're going to be in the same place. Either way, you're going to be correct. I just think it's, it's interesting to contemplate these things. And again, if these are parables, then that's the very thing we're supposed to do. And the beauty of a parable is you don't really have to choose. The beauty of a parable is these are the mysteria of the kingdom of God. So you can explore the very way we've just explored and say, yep. <laughs> okay, let me pause there because um, then we pivot uh, to the final aspect of this. And you can tell that there's, even though there's some subheadings in your text, there's not originally. This is all one seamless presentation by Jesus. Anything rattling around? Yeah. yeah it seems like to me these, these sort of tie together about the uh, respect of the eye and the law of your life. Uh, and the bishop who says we need to be, be careful about how we judge people mm-hmm. because, you know, we have our own problems and we should be, uh, we don't want people doing some crazy things, but we don't know what burden they're carrying. Mm-hmm. We don't know what, you know, so you, it's just, just sort of stand off, you know, and, and, and then the second part about the tree is we have to really, if we can't judge people immediately, but over time, mm-hmm. what they say, what, what they do, mm-hmm. well, they, it will come out, mm-hmm. but we shouldn't rush to, to judge. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. a broader application of you will know them by their fruits. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I think, and I, I think you're right on. Those are themes worth meditating on, especially because back in 37, you have, of course, the world's favorite verse, judge not and you will not be judged. <laughs> it's about the only verse they like from the Bible, I think. Yeah, so, so it is. It is, uh, and I think you're exactly right, though, Radford, to meditate on the, the log in our own eye versus the speck in our brother's. Sure is easier to fixate on that speck, isn't it? But not all things in our brother's eye are specks either. So, again, it invites meditation, but I think your point is a good one. Thank you, Radford. Appreciate it. All right, let's, um, we got two minutes. Let's try to punch it out. It's simple enough. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Poeta, dude, it's just, straight, it's just straight up. There's no sophistication here. There's no like trickery. Okay. I, but look how this weaves back to um, a disciple is not above his teacher. So if you call me Lord, why don't you do what I say? Why do you try to put the disciple above the teacher? So it's kind of fun because you go blind teacher, blind wood, wood in the tree, Back to teacher. So you got this nice oral and literary tape, tapestry being woven. 
All right, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Now, the study note down at 60, uh, chapter 6, verse 47 through 49 in your Lutheran study Bible says this parable. So they cue in on the language, what he is like, and see this as a different parable. I don't know. Either way, what he is like, he is like a man building a house. Now, this is nuanced. It's going to be different than maybe what you're familiar with at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the petron, the rock. Uh, Not the petra, it's not the little pebble, but the petra, the petron, the rock slab. We encountered that this last week in the lectionary with uh, the shallow soil upon and those that can't dig a root because the seed fell there upon the petron, this rock slab. Okay, so this man lays the foundation of his house on the petron. What is the petron? Rock. The word of Jesus. The word of Jesus. Which also, you have the, you know, uh, where, where Jesus says, you know, you are Petros, and upon this Petron, I will build my, what's he talking about, Peter, or his own word that Peter has just confessed, the flesh and blood have not revealed to him, but his father who is in heaven. So it's just clear as day, if you actually trace this language of Petros versus Petra or Petron through the scriptures, you're prepared that when Jesus says that, you know he's talking about the foundation of his word. Here's the proof text you need. I mean, that's all you need. You could turn to Peter, though, too, and see where, what Peter says. And he says that the Petra uh, is, is the word of Christ, not him. Okay, so anyway, he builds the foundation on the rock. The rock is God's word. He's built his foundation on God's word. All right. And when a flood arose, the stream, now this is like a flash flood. The flood engorges the stream, and the stream comes ripping out of its banks and broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Here's the contrast, and it's hilarious, I think. But the what, because it's something I would do, but the one who hears and does not do them. So both men are hearers. One is a hearer and a doer, one is a hearer only. The one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. (laughs) I mean, imagine this. Not only does he not seek out the rock, he didn't even lay a foundation. He just puts up the walls on the darn bare earth. All right, well, how's this going to go? When the stream broke against it, so the same flood, the same engorged stream, when the flood, flooded stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. All right, so this, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty darn convinced that after this rather intense sermon, the final response of Jesus' original hearers probably would have been laughter at the absurdity of this idiot. But again, that drives home the point is you have to be an absolute idiot to hear what Jesus says and not do it. Now, that doesn't just mean like, oh, so now I've got to be perfect or I'm an idiot. I've got to morally fulfill the law entirely or I'm an idiot. No, that's not the point. The point is to be a disciple of Jesus. The point is to live in repentance and absolution and walk in those works and conform yourself to the thoughts, words, and deeds of the master. That's the whole point. If you just hear his words and go, well, that's wonderful that my sins are forgiven. Uh, I could care less, Jesus, what you think, say, or do. I'm going to do whatever I want because I'm free in the gospel. Well, you're like that man that when the water comes around <sighs> your house. So how about instead, like, hey, because you have so loved me that you have laid down your life for me, because you have loved me first, I so love you that I desire nothing more in heaven and on earth than to be like you. I'm unworthy of such an honor to think your thoughts, say your words, do your deeds. Okay, that's how it ends. I'm sorry it took us a little over here. I apologize for that. Um, any, anything is imminent that we want to wrap up? 
All right, so that's the pre-parable of Jesus before you hit Luke 13 and the explanation. So what we're going to do next week is we'll go through the parables of Luke right up to uh, anything having to do with the judgment. So we'll have the full body of the parables laid upon that foundation of why we have parables in the first place. And then we'll climax with the parables of judgment. See how this whole mode and method of teaching comes to its fullness. All right, let's close with the Lord's Prayer, and I'll be happy to hang out if you have any additional questions or thoughts. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hey, Pastor. Yes, sir. Yeah, this is Brad. Um, as far as the, the good and the bad tree, are, were you saying there were two interpretations of that, one being an, a believer and, and an unbeliever, and the other one being uh, a Christian walking in the Spirit versus one who is doing things uh, not in faith? I mean, that's what I was getting. I didn't, I don't know. Um, well, no, I know I wasn't making that exact point. Uh, the, the unbeliever. So most, most frequently how this is read is that the bad tree bearing bad fruit is the unbeliever. The good tree bearing fruit is the, is the believer, right? The only possibility I'm entertaining is because of the lack of expected parallelism between ha agathos anthropos, you would expect ha paneros anthropos, the good man, the evil man, but you don't have that. You have the good man, the evil or the evil one. That's a tantalizing lack of parallelism, exactly where you'd expect it. And that creates the possibility that the good tree is Christ, the bad tree is Satan, the good tree bearing good fruit, the Christians are actually the fruit of this tree. Mm -hmm. The bad or evil tree bearing evil fruit is actually Satan bearing unbelievers. So I see. Yeah. And and even if that's, so that's an exegetical possibility, even if it's exegetically an error, you can see how the point is nonetheless absolutely true and is in fact identical to the teaching where you're either sons of God or sons of the evil one, offspring of God or offspring of the evil one. So wherever you land exegetically is ultimately moot because you're going to uh, land in correct theology either way you go with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, okay, that does make sense, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then my final point there was just, I think that that's the beauty and purpose, positively speaking, of the parables. Is these are mysterion, they invite this kind of Christian reflection, and they sort of unfold in these different possibilities. It also made me think of a, a good tree, a uh, bad tree type of thing. In First John, he talks about um, a good tree bears good fruit, bad tree bears only only bad fruit. Yep. He says in first John where anyone who's in Christ does not sin, but yeah. if you do sin, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you're conflating two different points there, but yeah, exactly right. So if you're talking in a, in a very clear sense, the Christian, the, the Christian qua Christian does not sin. I, let me put it in a clear dogmatic category. The new man himself never sins, Right. Right. And that's what John has in view. And I I think definitively elsewhere where Christ talks about a good tree bearing good fruit as the Christian, he's talking about the new man as new Uh, man does not sin. I see. The old man can only sin. Now, yeah, so believer in this view, I mean, this is like an all or nothing kind of view of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the believer, he doesn't even see the sins. He doesn't reckon them or count them against us. He sees only the new man. And only those good fruits. He sees only a good tree. Now, an unbeliever, what does he see? He sees only a bad tree because he sees nothing flowing forth from faith. He sees only a bad tree with bad fruit. And there the parallel would be the judgments at the end of Matthew where you get like the sheep and the goats. Remember the sheep, he only sees the good. And the goats, he sees only the bad. Same thing with the two trees. 
Okay, that makes sense. That's why we can say we're already seated in heaven because he's looking at the good man, not the old man. Yeah, it's a great point. And it's it's also why whenever Jesus talks about like a good tree and good fruit and a bad tree and bad fruit, uh, it's the devil's confusion in us if we get all concerned about this because we're like, oh, I've got sin, so I must be a bad tree. That's not the point at all. The point rather is so refreshing to the Christian. You are a good tree bearing good fruit and God doesn't see anything other than that. So you see how it's the fullness of comfort. It's the gospel in its full sweetness. The other side of the coin is that when God looks at an unbeliever, he sees only a bad tree with bad fruit. That's the law in its full sternness. So embracing these categories of Jesus is actually profoundly comforting to the Christian once we understand them. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Great questions. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yep. All right, gentlemen online. Thanks again so much. Appreciate it.